Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this section. And let us see what you would have us to see from this. In your son's name, amen. All right, Joshua 7, verse, we're going to read. And it came to pass when Jabin, the king of Hazor, had heard these things, that he sent to Jabab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Achshaph, and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains, and in the plains south of Shinaroth, and, to the, and in the valley, and in the borders of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanites on the east and on the west, and to the Amorites, and to the Hittites, and the Pezzites, and the Jebusites in the mountains, and to the Hivite and under Hermon and the land of Mizpeth. And they went out, they and all their host with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude with horses and many chariots. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Memram to fight against Israel. All right, so we've We've covered the last couple weeks, we were talking about the southern battles, and uh, now we're going to be looking toward the northern part of the uh, promised land coming in. And it says that it came to pass that Jabin, king of Hazar, which is, is just above the Sea of Galilee on your maps, uh, it's in big bold print. <coughs> and uh, so he's a little ways away, and we're starting to show, show some people that are, are kind of far away from where they're at, because remember, they're down, they're down here at Gilgal, which is just north of Jericho, and we're talking about these this kings coming together from quite a ways away on the, on the north side of the Promised Land, and then he, he calls for Jabeth, the king of Madon, which is at the foot of Mount Car Carmel, which is on the, right on the coast of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. So he's calling for them, and to Shimron, and to Akshef, which those two towns, we're not quite sure where they are <laughs> uh, from history. And then he calls for the other kings of the, of the plains, and, and from the plains south of Shinaroth, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, an old name for the Sea of Galilee before it became Israel's land. And in the valley and in the borders of Dor to the west. So... All of this area, he's calling all of that area, which we know in Jesus' day is Galilee, Nazareth, and up there, it's the Judean area in Jesus' day. Um, so he's gathering the northern, the far northern kingdoms, as a matter of fact, to come to battle. And because they have heard what Joshua and the children of Israel have done to the southern kingdoms. And this is becoming news to everybody. It's like this nation is conquering everybody. They have wiped out Ammon. They have wiped out uh, Moab. They, they, they have wiped out all these different places, and they've totally conquered Jericho, which they figured nobody would be able to conquer because of how big the wall was and how protected. They've gone out and just annihilated the southern, southern area. And they've been winning everywhere they've gone to battle. And because God is on their side and God said, I will fight for you. And remember one of the major battles in the southern kingdom was when God stopped the sun from, from setting for 24 hours. So they ended up with a good 36 hours of battle to, to fight. And 
that was after a forced march. So we, we, we talked about how even to be able to fight for that long, there was a miracle just to strengthen the people. You were on a forced march to get to where the battle was overnight. Then you fought all day, and then God held the sun for another 24 hours. So there, there was a miracle of the sun, and there was also a miracle just that they had the strength to be able to fight. And God fought on their side. And remember, he sent hailstones, and it says the hailstones killed more of the enemy than the people killed. And that was the biggest battle of the southern uh, part. And it says, and to the Canaanite on the east, and on the west the Amorites, and then the Hittites, the Pezzites, the Jebusites, and the Hivites, and you know all those names that we always read on this section. We see those names a lot when they talk about the Promised Land, and that's all those people in that area in the in the hill country above Jerusalem, and. They, they're under, those people are near Mount Hermon, which Mount Hermon is on your map if you, way up north above where it says Dan, next to, near Damascus. All right, so all those people in that area have been called to come to battle. So we're going to see them trying to fight against all these nations that are against Israel, and God's put it in their heart to go to war. And we're going to see that in this chapter, how it says that God put it in. And it says, And their host went out, and all their host with them, much people, even as the sand on the seashore, a multitude with horses and chariots, very many. And so we see this. There's a large army being gathered together. Uh, we're going to see Jabin has decided, well, they've been able to destroy Jericho. They were able to destroy the five kings. They were able to destroy all the cities they come against. So we're just going to gather everybody else that's left together and went for one big battle. And this, actually, from a human point of view, it's a wonderful plan. Okay? We're going to gather all the people from all the north tribes, all the north countries, and we're going to come together and fight this 160,000-man army, and we're just going to gather everybody else that's left in the promised land to come against you. Good plan from a human point of view. Let's, you know... Yeah, these guys have overwhelmed all these other, other kings. We're going we're gonna to put together an army that can stand up against them. And the description was as the sand. In other words, they're saying probably bigger than what Israel had. Because Israel, we know, had 160 plus, 166, 168,000. And who knows when it says they number like the sand. And there was one other thing in here that Israel does not have. Horses and chariots. And, you know, we don't think much about that in our day, but the chariot of that day was the equivalent to tanks in our day. All right? They, they would run through the, the battle lines. They didn't fear anything. You could set up a picket against them to hurt the horses, but it was, if it was just people, chariot just drove right through the people. Didn't stop. It was, so didn't have any of them, you said? Nope, they didn't have horses. They didn't have uh, chariots. They've been on the move the whole time, and... And matter of fact, God told Moses that they are not to multiply horses. They were not to go back to Egypt to get horses. He didn't want them to be dependent upon Calvary and chariots. He wanted them to be dependent upon him. One of the mistakes that Solomon does in his day, and David had started it, he, got, he started buying horses and chariots, but Solomon bought all kinds of horses and chariots, and his dependence started to be on his own military might. 
and I can't remember how many it was, but he had stables full of horses for the chariots and could put out hundreds of chariots in battle. And that was something God never wanted them to do. He wanted them to make sure that you're not putting your hope in, in your military might. In our day and age, it would be our, um, like America's hope in the, the missile defense system and our nuclear weapons. And God would say, no, that's not where your hope is. Your hope is in me. Because no matter how good your army is, no matter how good your weapons are, if God is against you, it's not going to survive. And if God is for you, no weapon formed can take you out. I never thought of it that way, but that's, that's good. Well, even when Israel became a nation, God defended them back before they had a lot of military power. Planes and bombs and missiles fell from the air without exploding the armies surrendered to them, you know, to, to entire divisions would surrender to two or three people on the guard because the, the people saw more, more men than they figured they could win, so they surrendered, and people would look, why'd you surrender to just us three? And they go, it's the army behind you. They saw the angels, and God protected Israel back when they had no military strength to be able to defend themselves. With you know, for any and here God is saying, I'm your defense. They're, they've gathered up an entire huge army. They've got the equivalent of tanks with the with the chariots. They've got horses which run down people with no problem, and Israel's got infantry, people on feet, and that's all they've got. So we're looking at this, and from the northern uh, cities, they're looking at, okay, we're gonna we're gonna crush them. These people, they've got a lot of armies. They've been very successful. But we're going to crush them. We've got the military might. We've got the equipment. We've got the weapons. We're going to win this war. And that's their attitude. That's their attitude to this. And probably the people of Israel are a little nervous too. Because up till now, it doesn't seem like they've been facing chariots and horses. The attitude of the Jews even today is kind of a mix. They don't believe in God, yet they believe God gave them their land and and believe that God's going to deliver them, but they don't really believe in God. It's kind of a strange... How does that work? I don't ask me how it works. They, they admit that there's a God, but they act as, as atheists and that God doesn't care. So as best I guess you might say they're agnostic. There's a God who cares and loves them, but he's doesn't, not part of their life. And it doesn't, it doesn't make much sense in all of that, but it is, it is the way they operate. Israel is a very atheistic agnostic uh, country, even today. Yeah. You've got the extremes. You've got the ultra-religious. You've got the religious. And then you've got those who are Jews because they were born Jews. And for the most part, you will hear, they will say things like, God gave us this land, but they don't believe that there's a God. Yeah. You know, we, we, even when you say that, it is an amazing thing. But I'm going to tell you right now, when I was in when I was in college listening to all these people, they would do the same type of doublespeak all the time. Educated people in our, in our day and age will say diametrically opposed things in the same exact sentence and not think it's a, a problem. They will tell you that all life's important, but, you, but it, you might as well go out and murder your baby. You know, they'll say abortion, but you know, go murder the babies, but all life is important. Uh, they'll tell you that you know, morality is good, but go ahead and do, it's okay if they do bad things because we can't judge them. That's the craziness that not following God gets you into. 
And believe me, it used to strike me funny. I used to point out to them, you know, you just said two diametrically opposed views, which one's right? And they'll go both. Both. Even when you point it out to them that it makes no sense, that it's opposites, they will still hold on to the fact that both are in their mind are true. And it goes all the way back into the 60s and 70s with this no absolute values clarification and everything. And once you start disassociating everything from God's rules, anything goes, including logic. You can make the most illogical statements and, and decide that they are logical. This is where we are in our world. What God says is good, the people will say bad. What God says is bad, people will say is good. And they'll mix the message in the, in the same, same voice. And don't believe me? Start talking to your, uh, your grandchildren that are maybe teenagers or young adults and see, just start, start talking to them if they've been raised in the school systems. And you'll hear some very strange things out of them, if you, you know, especially if you don't try to correct them right off the bat. You'll hear some very strange thought patterns because that's what they've been taught in their life, that there's, that there's no real connection between things. Satan is a liar, and he's convinced people that these lies are true. And again, we see this separation. When once you decide that homosexual marriage is OK, like the Supreme Court said that it's unconstitutional, they actually didn't make a law saying it's right. They said it was unconstitutional. But once you disconnect marriage from God's standard, where's the line drawn? Immediately, within weeks of that decision, people were suing to be able to marry their dog, be able to marry their child, uh, children, be able to marry whatever they wanted just because that's what they want to do. And that was predicted by anybody who said, you disconnect God's truth, where do you make the standard? Where do you draw the line from that point on? Because God gives you a standard, but if you say his standard's not right, where do you draw the, stand, draw the line? And this is why it's important that we keep on what is true. Because once we break that standard, where do you draw the line? Because if you're going to follow the idea of evolution, there is no right or wrong unless you're strong, strong enough to make it a right or wrong. Because if we are just evolved animals and there is no higher authority, then whoever's the strongest gets to make the rules. And that's where evolution ultimately leads to. And whoever's the strongest, whoever has the most power, gets to do what they want. And if, once you disassociate your, yourself from God's rules, anything goes. Whoever's strongest gets to make the rules. And that's the way it, our world works without God. And that's why we're going to keep getting more and more evil, because when you are somebody who's willing to do anything to, be, to get your power, it leads to evil. Because the strongest person's willing to do whatever it takes to enforce their, their rules. And you see it in the gang world and everything. You know, the best time for a gang is when the, the leader's been there for a while and is unchallenged. There's a lot of peace going on. If that person appears weak or dies or goes to prison, there's a huge mess. And the rest of the town, the rest of the people pay the price while they battle out who's going to be the new leader. And this is the way evolution leads, the strong rule. Here, these people are getting together. They're going to go, we're going to outnumber these guys. We're going to, you know, not that they believed in evolution, but you know, we're, going to, we're going to overpower them by sheer numbers and equipment. And this is what they're looking for. And it says, these, uh, when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Memra. 
Memram to fight against Israel. And Memram is that little lake just above the Sea of Galilee. It's not marked in the map. It's just a little tiny lake just north of the Sea of Galilee and just north of Hazor. And that's where all these armies have gathered together. Nice water source, nice place to start their, start their crusade. So here we go. We've got a great big army. We got Joshua and the children of Israel to the south of them. And you've got to think, in one sense, the people are a little nervous. This is going to be the first time they have faced an army that has weapons of this type. It's the first time they faced an army of this size. Up till now, they've just fought, you know, a handful full of kings. And the description of, you know, greater than the sand, you know, as the sand of the as the sand tells us how that they're fighting a very large army. All right, verse 6. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver them up, all slain before Israel. You shall hew their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Memram suddenly, and they fell upon them, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto the great Zidon and unto the Mis. Rephathmaim into the valley of Mizpeth eastward, and they smote them till they left none remaining. And Joshua did to them as the Lord bade him, and hewed their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. All right. While they're camping there at Memram, <laughs> Israel's marching. Uh, uh, they're camping. They're trying. You know, they're camping. They're trying to organize. They're trying to organize a huge army into one fighting machine. And one thing you probably don't think about is how many different languages are represented here. They've called the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Prezizites, the Canaanites, all these different ites out there, and they've got them all together. There's a little bit of communication issues that are having to be, be figured out. The, the multiple kings are probably trying to figure out. Jabin's called them together, but who's going to be the, who's going to be the leader of this uh, huge army? Because you can't have every single king saying, I'm in charge, if you want to be a fighting machine. And so who knows how long they camp there, but long enough for Israel to march north. And we look at this. You know, this is a pretty decent march. They're down by the Dead Sea when they start. They're going to march beyond the Sea of Galilee, which is a hard march of three or four days normally. Uh, cars will do it in a full day, which they didn't have cars back then. Uh, and you're marching and you want to be able to fight, you're probably going to take two or three days to get there and still be ready to fight. They probably could have gotten there in two days, but they wouldn't have been in a shape to fight if they marched that hard. And so Israel marches up there. God tells them, don't be afraid because tomorrow they'll be dead. Mm -hmm. yeah. What a nice promise. You know, you're going to fight these guys, and tomorrow that big army is going to be dead. And God is so wonderful to, to tell them you know, ahead of time what's going to happen. Gives the people strength. They've already had all these successes in the south. Jericho's fallen. All the, all the places on the east side of the Jordan have fallen. And God says, don't mind this big army. You're going to be able to defeat them. And he goes, and when you do, you shall hew their horses, which means to uh, hamstring them. Cut their, cut their tendons in the back so that they are no longer useful because he didn't want Israel depending upon those horses either. 
They were, the horses were to be hand-strung. Not, wouldn't be deadly to them, but they would not be able to go to war anymore. They would not be able to, probably not even able to plow or anything else. It's, you've, you've basically destroyed the horse for any useful thing other than to look pretty. And uh, I don't know why he said just didn't kill them. I mean, it's equivalent of doing that to them by hamstringing them. And he says you're going to burn their chariots. Okay. He says you're going to take their major weapons of war and destroy them. And that was what God's wanted them to do. He did not want them depending upon human strength. And it's the same thing for us in our life. We've said this over and over. So many times we think we can trust in our own strength. God, I am so strong in this area, I will never fail. Well, if you say that, be sure that you're going to fail in that, that, that place that you think you're strong in. Because God is not going to let you be successful in yourself. We look at Peter and Paul, in the, the apostles in the New Testament. Paul, excellent scholar of the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish religion, knew everything there was to know, trained by Gamaliel, the number three teacher of Jewish law of all time, not just of that day, but of all time. Peter, a fisherman. Probably used to dealing with Gentiles more than, more than uh, Paul was. Who was sent to the Gentiles? Paul. Who was sent to the Jews? Peter. You know, God oftentimes will pe send people to a place that's not their strength. I've seen it over and over in the church where God uses people and you'll go, God, how are you using that person? They have no skills in that area and yet God will use people because he wants them to be dependent upon him. If Paul had gone to the Jewish people, he would have depended on his own knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures and his own ability to train and his own reputation as trained by Gamaliel. But instead, God said, you're going to go to the Gentiles don't care about any of that stuff. They don't care about any of your Jewish traditions. Peter, sent, you know, just an everyday common fisherman, was sent to be the Jewish evangelist. You know, God does this all the time. I want you to be used by me, he says. And when you open up to him, he fills you, he teaches you how to do it. I've seen people that have taught kids that go, I don't even like kids, and God calls them to teach kids. I've seen people that have been, been called to be pastors, and the last thing they ever thought they'd be doing is being a pastor. And they're going, no, God, there's no way. And God says, yeah, I've got that plan for you. Usually you'll do something other than what you think you're good at. Well, Moses, Moses lied anyway. Moses used an excuse because remember, Moses is trained to be the king of Egypt. He knew how to speak. He knew how to put together sentences. He, at that point, did not want to, and he used it as an excuse. Uh, Paul, you know, he was trained to do this. I mean, Moses was a very well-trained man to be the leader of three and a half million people wandering through the wilderness because he was trained to be a leader of a country. Now, was he good at it? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know any of that, but, you know, he was trained to do what God put him in charge of. Now, originally, he thought he was going to do it in his own strength. He killed the Egyptian. He was run out of Egypt, you know, with, on a rail because they wanted to kill him. 
for, you know, execute him for the murder of the Egyptian. He goes out and gets humbled for 40 years being a shepherd. Quite a, quite a difference from being prince of Egypt uh, in the palace with everything you want to being a shepherd with nothing. And then God's saying, okay, now it's time to go back. And at that time, you say, no, I don't want to go back. I kind of, I'm enjoying this life, and I don't want to go back into all that responsibility. Oh, God will use your strengths. We usually will find that we have strengths that we don't know anything about, and God will develop those strengths. But it won't be our natural strengths necessarily. Very rarely will you be called to use your natural strengths because if you're, if you're using your natural strength, you start really being, getting to the place of, look what I am doing, look what I have accomplished. How, you know, God, you are so lucky you have me and my skills to do this. And God will usually... Not always. There's, there's exceptions to every rule. There's times when people are really strong and God will still use them. But most of the time, he pulls people that just blow your mind. You're like, God, how, how, what are you calling this person to do this? And so when somebody says, well, I could never do something, I'm going, okay, God, you're, you're, are you talking to them? And that's why they're trying to say they would never do something? And usually you'll find out that's exactly what they end up doing. Mm-hmm. You say, I'll never do or I'll never fall, you know, I'm so strong, I'll never fall in this area, you're going to fall in that area. God, I am so weak, I would never be able to do this, you're probably going to be doing it. <laughs> Just because God will say, perfect, that's exactly what I want. I want somebody who's weak, that will have to depend on me. And it's so important that we learn to depend on him. I heard a pastor about two weeks ago that said, the problem most of us have is not that we're not strong enough, but it is that we are not weak enough. God wants us to be weak, so we'll be dependent upon him. You know, our Americanism is that people will say that in the Bible it says God helps those who help themselves. No, that's a lie. It doesn't say anything like that. As a matter of fact, that's the exact opposite of what God says. God says he helps those who cannot help themselves. And that's where he wants us. He wants us so weak and dependent on him that everything is coming from him. Because if I think it's me, then it's my righteousness, my actions, and God says, no, those don't stand in front of him. Isaiah 63 says that all our righteousness is filthy rags. Everything I can do in my flesh, no matter how good it might even seem, in God's eyes, is filthy rags. Which is why he wants the people who are weak. They will depend upon him and let him work through them. And every once in a while, there's a person who's strong that can say, okay, God, I'm going to, it's still all you. They're rare. Very rare that that's the case. They're out there, but they're, they're not. The, God will almost always take somebody who is totally weak and says, I need God to do anything. And that's the right attitude. Whatever, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm ready to do it. And go out and find out what he wants you to do. Keep trying things until you find out what God wants you to do. Uh, and that's the best thing to do. And here, the children of Israel are getting ready to come to battle. And it says in verse 7, So Joshua and all the people of war came against them by the waters of Memram suddenly, and they fell upon them. So they caught them still camping, out trying to figure out their battle plan. And the best way to catch your enemy is when they're not ready to fight. (laughs) And... During Israel's early days, that's what they tried to do on the Six-Day War. They attacked them on a holy holiday, figuring that they were going to be able to destroy Israel because they'd all be 
on their holiday, you know, their religious holiday, and most of them were, except for a handful of people, but God defended them. And then they scrambled their army and took, took quite a bit of land back from, from the attackers. And here they're coming upon the enemy unaware. Unaware they're coming upon him. And it says, The Lord delivered them, and they smote them and chased them all the way unto great Zidon. Now, we're looking at your map, and they were just outside that little lake above Hezroth, and they chased them, go northwest to Sidon. They chased them all the way up to there in their retreat. You know, that's a long direction that they're fighting them. Uh, it says Z in the, in the King James Version and S on the map, but they're same, same place. <laughs> same place. They're, they chased them a long ways in their retreat. It is a long way. That's, a, that's quite a retreat. They're, they're chasing them for more than a day because you're not making that distance in a day. In a day. It's hard to fight a rear guard battle. <laughs> if you're running away, it's hard to defend yourself at all. And when you're in full retreat, you're not leaving anybody behind. You, you didn't, this wasn't a planned retreat. This is, you wake up and you've got swords and arrows and spears all around you. You're panicking and you're running. Even if you had armor on, your armor on the back side of you is not near as strong as on the front side of you. The way to in a battle is never to, to retreat because there's just not a protective protection there. You might have a small bit of metal chain mail or something on your back, but you're not in a defensive position. And they are trying to escape, and they're running. You, you can see they're running. This is a full-scale retreat. The entire northern alliance is in retreat. You've got 160-some thousand Israelites chasing However many there was that uh, were gathered against them, they attacked them before they would have time to hitch their, hitch their chariots up. Uh, the horses are probably un, unsaddled, so their number one weapon is useless against them because they got attacked unaware. So God says, you're going to win this battle. And they chase them all the way to Zidon and unto Misrothop, which is a city north of Sidon, and into the valley of Mizbeth, which is over by Hermon, Mount Hermon, which is, uh, if you go west and a little bit south of Sidon. So in essence, they basically run north and northwest. They, they are in full retreat. They're trying to get back to their cities and their homes. So did they run without their chariots because the horses probably were? Oh, I'm sure they were left their chariots behind and their horses and everything else. That, you know, this is one thing that when you put your trust in things, God can arrange for your trust to be totally wiped out. This happens with churches. It happens with Christians. It happens with nations. Uh, if you trust in things, God will prove to you that the things are not worth what you put your faith in. This happens a lot of times, and even though I have used some things like the way of the master on teaching evangelism, you have to be careful about teaching ways of doing things because you have to be willing to go outside of those because otherwise you're putting your trust in something rather than God. And this is why I share with people, when I give the gospel message, I have learned so many different ways of giving and presenting the gospel that I don't use any of them fully. 
you know, I want to start a conversation. I want to pass out a track. I want to talk to them. I might use the Roman road. I might use the way of the master. I may use the faith message. I may use you know, any number of ways to present the gospel by listening to the Holy Spirit. And this is what we need to be careful of. If all we're doing is giving a sales pitch, it's not going to be effective. It really has to come from the heart. And I like the way of the master. It's a very good way of evangelizing and, and gives you an amazing thing about the way of the master is the, the person who doesn't know the script follows the script. You know, it's kind of an amazing thing. You know, uh, you, know you ask them, have you ever sinned? You know, or do you consider yourself a good person? And almost everybody says yes, which leads you to the next statement in the way of the master. And then you show them that they are a sinner. You know, and you just go right down the list. And it's like, did you, did you read? The, did I give you the script to read? And, you know, and yet they're following the script because it's so natural. But almost any good evangelism plan is the same way. The, the Roman road. You're, you know, do you realize that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Yeah, well, you, you teach them that. You show them that the, everybody has sinned. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And you just walk them right down the path of, of the Roman road. It's really an easy thing when you listen to God. And how do you open those? And that was the biggest question even when we were doing Way of the Master. How do you start that conversation? Well, it could be any number of things. I shared the other day, when you're out, when you're out to eat, have you ever asked the, the waiter, waitress, uh, bus person, is there anything we can pray for you for? That can open a door right there. Because number one, you're going to find out, do they really believe in God or do they, or they have a superficial knowledge of God or do they have a real antagonistic view of God. That'll come out real quick. No, I don't want prayer. Yeah, okay, fine, no problem. Oh, yes, I need somebody to pray. I best I'll be in my church to do it. Okay, you don't need the gospel either. You're, you're okay. You know, how do we do this? We listen to the Spirit. You know, we listen to the Spirit on how to open up a conversation, how to talk to people, how to go forward with our conversation. Satan will retreat when God moves forward. He doesn't like to be in the Spirit of God any more than the lost world does. And the amazing thing is, and we've, we've talked about this several times, we as Christians have Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. Wherever we go, we bring the presence of God with us. You do not have to say a word for people to get convicted of their sin in the presence of God. It's an amazing thing sometimes. You know, I've had more people apologize to me for saying something, and they don't even know who I am sometimes. They'll just say, I'm sorry. It's not me you offended. <laughs> Especially if they know I'm a pastor or a chaplain, they'll always do that. But it's like, it's not me you're offended with that language. It's God you're offending with using his name in vain. It doesn't bother me. You know, it's God that you're making these statements against. How do we open up these conversations? How do we look? We stand and face the battle, and we bring the battle to the enemy. Now, we've got to develop this desire to give the gospel to people. People are headed to hell every day. Last statistic I heard is one death every 60 seconds in this world. That means six, six seconds. Did I say six seconds? Yeah. Every minute, 10 people die. Every hour, 60. You think about that, that's a really horrible thought of how many people are dying 
and oftentimes we don't say anything to our friends and neighbors and they're part of that death that is potential. And the time you really think about it is when they die and you go, I never, I never shared the gospel with that person and now it's too late. You know, and if they're a real friend, that's a really sad place to be, that you never shared the gospel with a, fr with a quote unquote friend or a loved one or a family member. You know, the battle is God's, but we have to open our mouth. And the good news is if you open your mouth to give the gospel, God will fill it. It's an amazing thing, listening to God when you're talking to somebody about the gospel and listening to what God is saying through your mouth as he's, as he's working through it. And it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And verse 9 says, uh, the end of verse 8 says that they left none of them remaining. They killed the entire army that was against them. And then verse 9 says Joshua did just what the Lord did, said to do. He, he uh, hamstrung the horses and he burnt their chariots. One thing we can say about jo uh, Joshua is he is obedient to God. He's a little slow sometimes in getting to God, but he is very obedient to God when it's time to go out. Now remember, when they, when they make this uh, agreement with the, the people who pretend to be from a long distance, the reason they made that agreement was they forgot to go to God and ask for his advice. So Joshua, is, when, when he listens to God, he does a very good job being obedient. Verse 10, And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. And Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not one, any left to breathe. And he burnt Hazor with fire and the cities of those kings and all the kings. Them did Joshua take and smite them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. But as for the cities that stood in, still in their strength, Israel burned none of them save Hazor only. That did Joshua burn. And the spoils of these cities and the cattle and the, chil the children of Israel took from, for a prey unto themselves. But every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. Neither left they any to breathe. As the Lord commanded Moses' his servant, so did Moses command Joshua. And so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so after this battle, they've chased them all the way to to Sidon and, and Mount Hermon and that whole area. They've, just, they've basically destroyed the horses and the, and the chariots. Then they go back and they go back to Hezron, uh, Hazor and they kill the king. All right. Apparently the king went back to his city. He, had, he was the closest city, so he, <laughs> he had an easy, easy run. He's, he's, only, he's only a short distance, so he probably got back to his city fast enough to be, obviously, be saved. He should have. Oh, that's Well, saved from the immediate battle. For, 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 a, day, for a day or two. <laughs> now, for a day or two, he was safe. Uh, he made it to his city. And... Joshua came back, and because he's the one that organized all these people, it said he was the king, he was the head of all these kingdoms, he's the one that called them together, and it probably had just started getting everything organized so that he'd be the one in charge. He was the one that his, his city is destroyed. He's the what? His, his city is totally destroyed. He's killed, 
They destroy the city. They destroy every person in that city. Uh, basically showing them don't stand, don't don't be the instigator of the, against us. <laughs> yeah, you'll lose, you'll lose everything. Uh, so he's he's got that, and then it says, and all those cities of those kings and the kings of them did Joshua take, and he smote them. So he killed them. He killed all the other kings from all those different places that we talked about. That's that's quite a slaughter. And it's amazing to me, it seems like most of these kings were cowards. They never were in battle to get killed with their troops. <laughs> you, know, you think about this. In the, southern, in the southern kingdom, it was the same thing. They would conquer the city. They would take the king and kill him. Uh, you know, all through the southern campaign, they didn't seem to die in battle. And there was a time when kings stood on the, on the hill and they sent their people into the valley. And even today, a lot of times, generals stand in the back and they send their people in to die. And they don't, and they stand back behind the scenes. Every once in a while, you get a general who's, you know, famous for being a battlefield general. They want to be in the battle with their people. But in this particular instance, we see the same thing we've seen all along. These kings seem to be cowards. They hid. Uh, we're, we're, we're the furthest from the battle. We're going to get away. Now, the second thing that gets them away also is, of course, they have a bodyguard that is their hand-picked army. They're, they have the only, only ones that are professional soldiers in these places are their bodyguard. So it's a little harder to kill the king as well. So I'm not going to just say they're cowards, but they have a, they'll have 20 or 30 men that are their hand-picked people who, much like Secret Service is supposed to do for the president, they would give their life to protect the president. The bodyguards are, are that type of men. They're to give their, they will give their life before the king dies. The kings had a larger responsibility. There's that argument that gets made. <laughs> the logic behind them not going into battle was just that. I have the responsibility. I've got the responsibility for the kingdom, and I'm not going to put my life at my, my life at hazard. They were usually at the headquarters making the plans. And there is some logic in the fact that you don't want your person who's the strategic leader of your, you know, in the front line to be killed so that the that the army gets. Uh, uh, lack of morale, you know, demoralized be, because of their death. Uh, so yes, there is a sense in that, and they've, and like I said, they're going to have a bodyguard around them that is professional. There's always been leaders who are they're battlefield generals. They just enjoy the they enjoy the fight. You've got lots of leaders who just enjoy it. Uh, David David apparently was one who liked to be in the middle of the battles, uh, and so there's nothing necessarily wrong with not being in the battle. If you leave your people behind, there's a big problem. And, and like I say, it's, but we see this over and over that these kings are caught in, in the city or the cave as they were in the southern, southern kingdom. They hid in the cave out of the battlefield uh, and they got discovered. And they may have been using the cave as a command center as well. They may not have run to the cave. They may have been using it for a command center. I never really thought about that aspect of being in a command center someplace and being cut off from your being cut off from your troops. So but anyway, whatever the reason is, these kings <laughs> seem to stay alive in the battle. <laughs> and then they get they end up getting killed in a very <coughs> ignoble ignom infamous way. You know, they get executed. They don't die in battle. And that's a you know for a king or even a general to not die in battle is really an insult to them. They, they would rather die in battle than to be caught 
and executed. And these kings were executed. All right, they were executed for their desire to fight. But it says in verse 13, but as the, for these cities that, that stood in their strength, Israel did not burn them, so they conquered them. So Israel is now getting a whole bunch of instant cities. Yeah. And that's what God told them they were going to have. You're going to get cities that you didn't build. You're going to get uh, uh, vineyards and, and orchards that you didn't plant. You're going to have fields that you didn't uh, dig the rocks out of and, and plant. You're going to get all of these things. In other words, an instant civilization. And so they took these cities and they now became Jewish cities with, without, with all the men dead. And it says they took all the spoil of the cities, the cattle, and, but every man they killed so that there was no man left to breathe. And so this is a case where they get the spoils, they kill all the, the males, and they end up putting the women into servants. And if they and remember, God gave rules that if there was a woman that they really caught their fancy and they wanted to get married to, he gave them rules for that to happen. They couldn't just take these women and use them as toys. They had to be married to them. All right? And this was the rules that God put in place for them. And he gave them very strict rules for all of this. They were to be a moral people following God's way of doing things. And uh, so we see this whole battle that they've got. And they, it says God commanded them. And Joshua did everything that God said. And that was literally, you're going to kill all the people, all the men in the promised land. Why did he do that? As a punishment for how sinful they had gotten. And I'm actually surprised that God let the women stay alive, to be honest, especially after what happened to them when Balak sent the women in to seduce the men and draw them to their gods. So I'm really surprised that God even let the women stay alive, to be honest, because we'd already seen what they had done on the other side of the Jordan when Balak followed Balaam's advice and, and got them to go into sinful relations and follow after other gods. And we will also see as Israel progresses, they follow after the gods of these lands. They had to learn it from someplace, and they learned it from the women that were left alive. To How do, how do you worship Astaroth? How do you worship Baal? How do you worship uh, all these different gods? The women were there to show them how to worship the idols. So there's a problem in that whole process. And Again, it was them not being leaders in their life and following after God. It's kind of like the, the tree in the garden, didn't He left it there and told them, don't eat it. And, and it was tempting. It had to be. But he told them, don't eat it. These women, and he leaves them again, knowing things that he didn't want them to know. And they fell down again. I never thought about it. But it was not bad. It's a, there's a temptation there. God will never take all temptation out of our life, ever. There will always be temptations in our life to test us. And usually we'll be tested in two very important areas, where we're weakest. And you know, the weak, when we're, where we're weakest is not usually where we fall the most often because we usually, if we're really wanting to be righteous, we put a guard on that area because we know we're weak. But he'll also allow us to be tested where, we're, where we think we're strong. 
And that's usually the area that we don't put a lot of guard on. Many men have had an adulterous affair because they don't put a guard on their heart. They love their wife, they love their family, and over time, little things get in there, little nicks get into their armor. They get a fight with their wife at just about the right time when this, this woman starts paying attention to them. Not necessarily a real pretty, you know, it doesn't have to be real pretty or anything, it's just they start paying attention to them. They haven't, they don't feel like they've been having attention put on them, and all of a sudden, there's an affair. Satan is really good with this. You know, it's going to happen to women too, especially now that they're in the workplace. Their husband hasn't said anything nice to them in years, hasn't said that I love you or, or even acknowledged them. And some guy says, oh, you look so pretty and you look, you, know, you, look, you, you look really nice today and starts paying attention. And you know, that, that stroking of the ego goes a long way to make people fall. And it's very easy to fall in our strengths if we don't put a guard on our heart very easy and we must always ask God to keep us and when we see the temptation and we need to be able to see it we turn to God and say God I need your help you know, there hath no temptation overtaken you but such it is common to man but God is faithful who will provide a way of escape very important and there's two parts of that verse number one when Satan tempts us he usually tries to convince us that we're the only person who's ever had these these thoughts, or you're the only person that's ever tempted like this. And it might even go, well, you know, if those other Christians knew what you, what you were thinking, oh my goodness, they would, they would reject you in a heartbeat. And then we isolate ourselves, and we fall, fall even further. And then once you do, and then he'll come along and, you know, you know God will forgive you if, you if you do this, which is a true statement. God will forgive you if you confess it and repent. And then when you do commit, commit the sin, he goes, oh, you're such a terrible person. How could you do such a thing? And we all know that this is exactly what happens to you in your life. You go, okay, God, you'll forgive me. And then you sin, and it's like, oh, man, how could I have done that? I mean, so stupid, you know. And we get that conviction on both sides. And Satan is really good at playing us real hard on these things and trying to make sure, one, separate yourself because, you know, your, your thoughts are so, so awful. No, you know, no, no Christian in the middle of a sermon would have that kind of a sinful thought that he put in there in the first place. And you go, man, I am so terrible. I can't, I can't be around all these Christians. Look how bad I am. And you start separating yourself from the church. And then you fall, and you really start separating yourself because now you're, now you're con condemning yourself for having fallen. Because Satan says, oh, Steve, you're, you're, you're terrible. You might as well come get away from them. So important to understand. Whatever you're being tempted to do, there's lots of other people that's doing that. And we're not just going to say one or two other. There are lots of people. It's common. No matter what it is that you're being tempted to do, it is common for people to be tempted. And then when you, if and when you do fall, confess your sin and go back to God and let him restore you. Don't separate yourself from the church. And I've seen it so many times over the years. People drift away from the church, and then they condemn themselves, and they won't go back to church for a long period of time because they just will not accept the forgiveness of God. And the farther you get away from the church, the more you're into sin you get, the more, the more things you do that aren't godly. And then you start going, well, I can't go back to church because I'm so terrible. And God's saying, come on back because it's all me anyway. It's all my grace. We're going to finish this chapter. We're close to it. 
Verse 16, so Joshua took all the land, the hills, and all the south country, and all the country of the, Go of the Goshen, and the valley of the plain, and the mountain of Israel, and the valley of the same, even to Mount Halak, and that goes unto Seir, even to Balagad, and the valley of Lebanon, under the Mount Hermon. And all the kings he took, and smote them, and slew them. And Joshua made war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hiphites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all others they took in battle. And it was the Lord that hardened their hearts that they would come against Israel to battle that, they, that he might destroy them utterly and that they might find no favor, but that, they might destroy, that he might destroy them as he, the Lord had commanded Moses. And at the time that Joshua had cut off the Anakites from the mountains from Hebron to Debir, from Anak, Anab, and all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. And there was none of the Anakins left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod there remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it an inheritance to Israel according to the divisions by their tribes and the land rested from war. All right, so here we see that Joshua is taking all the land, it says from the hills, the south country, all the way down to the land of Goshen. Does everybody remember where Goshen is? That's where Israel lived in Egypt. So they were going, they went all the way back down to Egypt. Their land under Joshua went all the way back down into Goshen. Egypt has not recovered enough to defend themselves against it. It says a long time. <laughs> it doesn't tell us how many years. The most that it could be is 30 years. Because that's the time, of, that's how old Joshua lived to be. Uh, now, it doesn't sound like he fought for his entire life. So we're looking at 30, 30 years or so would be the longest. And it just kind of summarizes all of this. And so we look at this, and he says he, he took all this country, even from Mount Hazet, which is in southern Israel. It's not really known where. They're just starting in the south. And, and Seir, which is somewhere in the south, <laughs> unto Balagad and the Valley of Lebanon, which is, is up uh, way back up to the north. <laughs> and, and this uh, valley is under Mount Hermon, which we already pointed out. Mount Hermon is just to the west of Damascus. And he took all the kings, he smote them, and, he, and it says he made war for a long time against those kings. And again, how long is long doesn't really tell us. And we did talk about how miraculous these battles are. He's conquered the largest part of this country in a very short period of time. And from this point on, it's going to be mopping up the little towns here, there, you know, all over the place. Um, he says they made no peace with anybody except for the Gibeonites, and that was where they made the peace without asking God. And verse 20 says, For the Lord hardened the hearts of the people. They were, he brought them against them. He would not let them even try to make peace because he wanted them destroyed. And you know, this is something that happens oftentimes. If somebody goes too far into sin, God will harden their hearts so they will not respond to the call of grace. How far that is? It's different with every person, and I don't think God does it often, but there are people whose hearts are going to be hardened. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, which meant that he kept making it 
making him stubborn in his decision. You know, we've all probably met some people that have had very hard hearts that it seems like nothing will get through to them at all. And I'm not going to say nothing will, but it takes an act of God to get through their heart. Annie? God only finishes what man will start. If you go back to Pharaoh on the ten plagues, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says God hardened his heart. You've hardened your heart so much, Pharaoh, that I am now going to really keep you making your decisions because you're, you are going to send my people away. And you're going to do it in, a, in, a, in the final way. So yes, it's both. It's the same thing when we say, who, who is the one that asked Jesus into your heart? Well, God calls us. He's the one that leads us to him. It's God who's done all the work up till then, and it's God who completes the work. You know, our part is just to kind of surrender, and I'm not even sure how much we have in that part because it's his work, his call. And we just finally go, okay, God, I give up. You know, and if you've ever been in a place where you've been fighting against God for any length of time and you finally just say, God, I give up, and, and God says, okay, good, let's, get, let's move you forward now. Now, I didn't fight him as long as Abraham did when he was stand, staying in, with his, uh, in Haran. He stayed for 20 years before he, started, before he obeyed God again. And I can really picture God saying, about time you got back on the road where you're supposed to be. Yeah, on the road again, you know, but, you know you're, you're supposed to be in, in, in the promised land a long time ago. What are you doing here? You know, very important for us that when, when we start deciding we're going to not fight God, go back to what the last thing you know that he told you to do and go do it. <laughs> Abraham knew what he was supposed to do, and it was like, okay, it's time to leave. Dad's dead. It's time to leave. And he left. He left his brother there in Haran and left with... Left with uh, Lot, which he probably regretted leaving with Lot later on, but, uh, but you know, being obedient to God and turning to Him, no matter how long you delay to be obedient, God will still use you when you finally turn to Him and be obedient. And how God can use you, it's pretty amazing. Moses isn't used until he's 80. Joshua doesn't start leading the people until he's 60 or 70. Uh, so many places we see people that are used when they get older. Read some of these biographies, and some of these people don't get, really get used until 30, 40, 50, 60 years old when they finally decide to follow God and get used by God the way God wanted to use them earlier in their life. Now, that, does that mean they should have listened earlier? Probably, but God used every one of those experiences they went through to make them who they are so that they'll serve God in a, in, a, in a way that is special. God used all of my training and everything to make me ready to be a pastor and be able to do different things with the, being a pastor. Be aware that wherever you're at, God's ready to use you. We are not in a position where we want to retire anytime soon because our retirement is when we go to heaven. That's our ultimate retirement. If you retire from physical work in this world, go serve God somewhere and find a way to serve him, whatever it is he's called you to do. I cannot picture myself not serving God. If I can't teach God's word, I'd be in trouble because I've been teaching God's word since I was 14 years old. Teaching in Sunday school, teaching in Bible studies, teaching at home Bible studies, teaching in wherever. been teaching because that is what I was called to do. And so find out what God's called you to do and go do it, whatever it might be. You know, 
whatever it is that he's called you to do. And it says, God hardened their hearts that, that Israel might destroy them utterly and they would find no favor. They would seek no favor and they would get no favor. And then it says, then at that time, Joshua cut off the Anakins and the Anakins are mighty warriors, usually giants. They're considered giants. Um, and he cuts them off from all of, all of Canaan. Canaan used to be filled with, with the people, the giant, giant Anakins. Remember when they first spy out the land, they go, they're full of giants, which is Anakins. Full of giants. And they go, you know, and, and their evaluation of themselves was, we see ourselves as grasshoppers, and that's how they see us. You know, they see us as grasshoppers. Now, I have no idea how they knew how the giants saw them. Uh, they were, did what we often do. If I feel that I'm inadequate, I will project that everybody sees me as inadequate. And it's a pretty amazing thing when you talk to them. Believe me, I've, I've went to promote somebody and says, oh, I could never do that. Well, why do you think I'm asking you to be promoted? I think you can. Well, I'm just not good enough. You know, nobody, everybody knows that I'm not good enough. We project on people all the time what we think about ourselves on them. They did that. And they wandered in the de desert for 40 years because they were too afraid. And it says they wiped them out from up to Hebron, which is up in the north, Hebron, Abaddon, the mountains of Judah. And they destroyed all those. And it says there were none of the Anakins left except in the land of uh, the children of Israel, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Now, Gath might sound familiar from you. Does anybody know a famous person from Gath? Goliath. Goliath. Goliath is from Gath. Okay. And his brothers are from Gath. So even in David's day, there's the giant Anakins in the, in the Philistine land. And uh, so you see how all this stuff starts tying together when you, when you know these things. So that's why we try to bring these things out. So you start tying these stories that... Because people then would go, well, where did, where did this giant of Goliath come from in Gath? Well, it tells us. They were destroyed there. The Philistine area was not an area that they conquered until Solomon's day. The, the Philistines are always going to be in the pain in the neck to the, to the Jews. And even after, uh, uh, all the way through till Solomon's day, when he conquers that whole area, Solomon. David doesn't conquer them. They're pain in the neck for David, too. They're always, they're always rebellious down there. And it says Joshua took the whole land, and they, they give the inheritance. And next week, we'll look at all, a whole list of people that die, all these kings that, that die. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that you give victory to Israel, but you also give victory to us in our battles. We ask that you will... Be with us. Allow us to seek you in all that we do and let you be our strength and our victory in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.